This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. It's good to see such a beautiful, wonderful crowd out here today. And of course, on Zoom, I want to thank you all for coming out here today. I want to thank you, whether you're here in person, whether you're on the Zoom, whether you watch this later on Torah Anytime, or whether you download my podcast called Living Jewish with Burnham, which you can find on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find your podcast. So thank you all very much. There you go. Give yourself a round of applause. It may be the only one you get today. I also want to thank the amazing staff at Yeshua Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for setting up this beautiful lunch and learn, amazing food, amazing people. We want to thank them, and we want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. And it's filled with incredible Torah knowledge. Now, because... Hold on a second. Because we have such a special crowd here today, we are going to do a whopper of a class, ladies and gentlemen. Okay? A whopper of a class. Let's first give you the title. You ready, guys? Banking Failures, Bitcoin, and Pesach. Oh, yeah! Oh, yeah, it's going to be a good ride, ladies and gentlemen. Get strapped in. As you all may know, this past weekend, Silicon Valley Bank, ticker symbol SVIB, went bust. And there was a big question what was going to happen. On Friday of last week, it went bust. And over the weekend, everyone was very concerned. Is the entire American banking system going to fail if depositors are going to lose their money because the vast majority of Silicon Valley Bank depositors were over the $250,000 FDIC, Federal Deposits Insurance Corporations, limit for paying back people who get stuck in a bad bank failure? The vast majority of Silicon Valley's um, depositors were, you know, larger, uh, a lot of them were startup companies, tech firms, venture capital, VC, and they had way more than the 250000 which meant that there was going to be enormous, enormous losses. Of course, that losses were going to be paid back slowly over time. Eventually, probably everyone had gotten about 90%. But then, guess what happened? The federal government, someone's phone was ringing. It was probably coming to tell them what the answer is, but I know the answer already. So you can turn your phone onto silent. So the answer was the federal government swooped in and said, don't worry, we got your back. We got you covered. We're going to pay back all the, in, all the depositors. Anyone who deposited money with this bank, you good. We got you. We're going to let the stock fail. We're going to let the company go bust, which it should have. And uh, we're going to rescue all the depositors. Now, of course, this caused a ripple throughout the banking situation. Earlier this week, almost every American bank that was not what we call an SIB, a system, a, a systemically important bank, so you got the big, big banks like Chase and Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, those are the huge behemoths. Those are called SIBs, systemically important banks, the ones we call too big to fail. Those ones saw money flowing into them in mass numbers, and all the smaller banks, like Silicon Valley was, saw money flowing out of them. Their stocks tanked. Now, overall, three banks were shut down or wound down on their own, one in the last two weeks. One of them was known as Silvergate. The second one was Silicon Valley Bank. The third one was Signature Bank. I think the most important lesson that we all should walk away from this is 
Whatever you do, do not put your money in a bank that starts with S. <laughs> Silvergate, Silicon Valley, Signature. There's a, there's a pattern there, and I'm, I don't know if that's causation or correlation. It might just be causation. Okay. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what are we, how do we understand this whole thing? What happened? What's going on? What happened? How do we understand this? And what does it have to do with Pesach? Because anything that happens in the world, the sages tell us that whenever there's an event in the world, we're supposed to look at this event and say, what is this supposed to teach me about my relationship to God in the world? Everything, whether it's a tsunami, some team that was the underdog winning the, the world uh, you know, series, or a bank failure that rocks the markets, we're supposed to look at all these things and say, what lessons am I supposed to learn? Everything that happens in the world is a lesson. The whole world is a classroom, and Hashem is constantly teaching us lessons through the comings and goings of the world. So the question is, what lesson am I supposed to learn from the bank failure of Silicon Valley Bank? And can we tie it into Pesach, which would be nice because we're in the season. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna, we're gonna, now we're about to get into a little economics deep dive, and stay with me, all right? It's going to be a little bit wonky, a little bit nerdy. We're going to talk numbers, okay? <laughs> but we're going to get somewhere, all righty. Let's start off talking about Silicon Valley Bank. On the last day of 2019, which would have been 1231 2019 Silicon Valley Bank had $71 billion in deposits. $71 billion. Is that a lot? Is that a little? None of us have any clue because we can't really wrap our heads around $71 billion. But let's put it this way. It was not in the top 20 largest banks in America. Okay. Let's fast forward three years to the very last day of the year 2022. 12 31 2022 Silicon Valley Bank has now $211 billion in deposits, which means that in three years, this bank tripled in size. Now, generally, we know the rule, of course, the sages tell us, tafasta maruba lo tafasta. If you try to grab too much, you don't end up grabbing anything. If tafasta mua, tafasta, if you try to grab a little, you're much better off. So the first lesson, of course, we can learn from Silicon Valley Bank is that you probably shouldn't grow too fast. It's not healthy for the long run. However, that's not really what we're going to talk about right now. Why did it get so much money? In three years, this bank tripled in size. Well, there was a little event going on back in Washington during this time. It's a phenomenon called, a phenomenon called printer go <laughs> which means the printer is just printing money faster than ever. The United States government, during the pandemic response from the year from March of 2020, 2020, from when the pandemic sort of broke out, well, actually, it broke out a little bit earlier in Wuhan, and we would have been much better off if we got a little heads up from our friends in China that we had a lab leak over here, and you may have some terrible things coming your way. We might have been able to ramp up our production of proper medical supplies and all that, and many, many lives could have been saved, but they were busy hiding it and blaming it on pangolins. So we got stuck with it in March of 2020. Let me make a quick bracha. Baruch, not a quick bracha. Let me quickly make a bracha. You get the difference? I don't want to make a quick bracha. 
I'm going to slow bracha, but I want to quickly make it. Here we go. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Sha'akon, Niyah, Bidvarab. Okay. We got hit with this pandemic. The government says, everybody stay home. What are we going to live off? We're going to take care. Don't worry, says the government. We got you covered. Similar to what the government said to Silicon Valley Bank depositors. Don't worry, says the American government. We got you covered. We're going to start sending you checks. How big, we ask the government. Well, it depends which state you live in. But in a state like Michigan, a person can get about $968 a week. Far more than many people were making beforehand. And that caused many people to just say, I'm not going to go to work. Because why go to work? It's risky. It's all that. I can just stay at home and make more money. If I was making $16 an hour, right, times, times 40, what does that come out to? Uh, 820 Sorry, no, 720. I could stay home and make 968. So that kind of messed things up, but we're not, we're not, but but that's not the issue. The issue was that this printer kept going burr, 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 printing out not billions of dollars, trillions of dollars that nobody had any reason to understand where, where are we getting this money from. Now, while this was happening, of course, there's a very important institution called the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, their mandated job is to do two things. Keep prices stable and keep unemployment low through the expansion and contraction of money. Now, when they're expanding money, what they're doing is, number one, they're going to lower interest rates very, very low because they want people to borrow money because they want to stimulate the economy. The economy went through a total nosedive, and now they've got to stimulate the economy. So we're going to bring interest rates almost down to zero which is then supposed to stimulate the economy because then people borrow money to build factories and buy new businesses and buy better equipment and hire more employees. Except for the fact that you couldn't really hire more employees because nobody wanted to work. So instead, people bought cars and couches and you know, new items and the economy, the good for econ- the economy, the goods economy went through the roof. Everyone's buying all kinds of expensive items that they may not have normally bought, but the money was going there. So, brr. Now, when the Federal Reserve wants to lower interest rates, they make a decision how, we're, how much the interest rates are going to be. How do they keep them so low? Well, the answer is they say, we'll offer to lend anybody money at this very low interest rate. So why would you take money at more expensive rate from the bank, the government self says, don't worry, I got you. No problem, says the government. Don't worry, I got you. I'll give you money at 0.5%. No problem. I got you. The government's really good at saying, don't worry, I'll take care of you. (laughs) Then they lend money out at really, really low rates. They also do two other things, one which is less important, but it was more important in 2008. It's called OMO. Open market operations, which means the federal government just starts buying stuff, stocks, real estate portfolios, whatever, you know, because the government's always been really good at picking stocks and, uh, and real estate. Okay, so, and very importantly, if the Federal Reserve wants to stimulate the economy, there's one more thing they can do. They lower the fractional requirement of banks. Which means they tell banks, you don't need to keep so much money on hand. You could lend out more, make more money. You don't need to keep so much money on hand. That's going to become very important. We're going to get back to that. Let me give you a few statistics to understand this a little bit better. 
On March 12th, of 2003, which is almost exactly 20 years ago today, because today is March 16th, 2023. So on March 12th, 2003, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, now remember, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, most of what's on it is our, our debt, right? When you lend somebody money, you call that debt that they owe you, that's an asset because they owe you money. Okay, so it's mostly really just money they lent out. Exactly almost two years ago, sorry, 20 years ago to the day, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet was $717 billion. Today, 20 years later, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is $8.34 trillion, more than 10 times the amount it was in 2003, which means they've been lending out money like crazy. Because remember, if no one else wants to borrow at a cheaper rate, the government says, here, I got you, I'll give you even cheaper. They say they don't want to lend to you from the bank because you're a little bit risky. I got you. I'll lend to you. No problem. Next. This, of course, causes a lot of debt printing because as long as the Federal Reserve says, I'll buy American debt. I forgot this is a really important one, too. The government issues all these bonds. The government owes many, many trillions of dollars. We'll get to the numbers in a moment. Who's buying? China ain't buying. Everyone thinks China's buying. China's been lowering their exposure to U.S. debt since 2014. China, smartly, and again, I don't like China at all. They do a lot, a lot of bad things. One smart thing they did is they said, look, we keep buying American bonds, but they keep printing money. So the value of their money goes down. Instead of buying American bonds, why don't we buy things that are finite? And China started buying up finite properties all over the world. Ports, railways, mines, farmland. Because you can't just produce more mines. You can't just produce more ports. It doesn't work like that. So they said, we want to start buying finite assets instead of just buying American dollars because then America keeps printing more of them. So I'm buying it from them, but they keep devaluing it. 20 years ago, in March of 2003, our gross national debt, what America owed, was about $3.5 trillion. 20 years later, we owe $31.4 trillion. Now, that's a number none of us can wrap our head around. We, we really can't. It's impossible. No one has any clue what $34 trillion looks like. It, it's impossible. The amount of debt that we've accumulated right now is staggering. To give you one little stat, there are currently 164 million Americans working. If they were taxed to pay off the national debt, every single working American would have to pay $191,000 to pay off the national debt. Okay, that, that just goes to the government. But don't worry, says the government. I got you. I'll keep printing out money. You'll keep taking it. And we're all going to be happy. Isn't that right? Well, (laughs) I forgot. There's a little bit of a complication. When you keep printing out money all the time, then money becomes valued less. Products become valued more. That's something we call inflation. Yeah, inflation. Inflation! Okay, fine. So what does a thing of eggs cost today? About double, about double that it cost a couple years ago, right? Eggs and cars, used cars, old cars, chicken, meat, bread, everything goes up. And then the government says, wait a second, oh no, no! Uh-oh, we don't want to see red-hot inflation, that's a disaster. We have to stop the inflation. So what do we do to stop the inflation? We raise interest rates. And when we raise interest rates, it becomes too expensive for people to buy stuff, so they stop buying stuff, and the price of stuff goes down. 
But here's the problem, ladies and gentlemen. You've kept rates really low for a long time. You were issuing bonds at 1.5%. But now you have to raise interest rates, which means you also have to offer bonds at higher rates. So now bonds are being offered at 4.5% or 5%. And here is the key, ladies and gentlemen. Everyone who owns American bonds is really stuck right now. Because you bought a 10-year bond at 1.5%, and they're offering 10-year bonds right now at 3.9%. Your bond, no one wants to buy it from you. Now, you could just hold the bond, right? You could hold the bond for 10 years, and you'll get 1.5%. But inflation's at 5%, 6%. You're losing money every year, every single year. And you say, I want to get out of this investment. This is a bad investment. I want to sell it. Who wants to buy your 10-year bond at 1.5%? They can buy a 10-year bond at three and a half, four. So then your value of your bonds go down dramatically. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's go to one more important component. <laughs> the fractional reserve banking system. Ah, ladies and gentlemen, here's the beauty of where it all starts to get crazy. In America, banks can lend out much more than they have. Not just much more than they have in loans, but actually much more than they have, period. They just create new money as assets. But let's, let's not get into that for a second. Let's, go, let's, go make, let's keep it simple. People deposit $100 million by the bank. Now, if the bank's holding the $100 million in their bank account at all times to give out to people, then they, they make no money. So the banks want to lend it out. So there are fractional reserve requirements. The government says, you need to keep 5% in the bank so that people can be paid out when they come in. They need to do payroll. They need to, the person comes, they want to withdraw a billion dollars. You better have that there. So they say, if, if you have $100 billion in assets, you keep 5% or 10%, depending on the bank. You keep 5 or 10% in your bank accounts. And the rest, you can lend out. Now, who are you going to lend it to? You can often lend it to people who need mortgages. And you charge them 4 or 5%. But if you don't have anybody to lend it to, just lend it to the government. We got you. We'll give you a bond. And not only that, you're required to keep a bunch of your fractional reserve in bonds. You're required by law in order to get your federal charter. Because America wants people to buy their bonds, so they require all the banks to buy American bonds. Remember, the Chinese don't want to buy our bonds anymore. The federal government is buying a huge percentage of their own bonds, right? This is one of these weird things where the Treasury creates the bonds and the Federal Reserve buys the bonds from them. It's like, whatever. I don't know. It's a weird shell game, right? Imagine I said to you, I'm gonna, I have billions of dollars. You say, really? Oh, yeah, because I have loans that are coming due of billions of dollars. It's an asset on my balance sheet. Well, who owes it to you? Oh, me. <laughs> like, what? Me? But that's what the government does. But they don't, they don't want only that. You can't have only the government buying your bonds. I don't know if you know this, but right now, Japan, over 50% of their outstanding bonds are owed to themselves. That's a crisis you can't even imagine. When, okay, but when I, we're not talking about Japan right now. We're talking about America. America's balance sheet. We said the Federal Reserve's got $8.4 trillion on their balance sheet. So much of that is bonds that they've bought from federal from the from the government. So we require the banks to hold these these bonds. And now SVB Silicon Valley Bank has many many billions of dollars in bonds, but their bond portfolio is worth much less cuz they bought their bonds long term 10-year treasuries at 1.5%. Now 10-year treasuries are going for 3.5 or 4%. 
No one wants to buy their bond. Now, all is good if nobody comes and says, can I have my money back? Because then SVB just continues trundling along, collecting their 1.5%, and when 10 years are over, we escape that one. But that's not what happened. People realized that SVB did not have the right amount of money to cover their depositors. And in one day last week, Thursday of last week, $42 billion were withdrawn from the bank in one day. That required them to sell everything they had available to sell at a fire sale at a huge loss. They sold $24 billion worth of bonds for $23.8 billion worth of bonds for about $21.4 billion, taking a $1.8 billion haircut. By the way, who bought those bonds? Goldman Sachs, of course. Goldman Sachs. If there's ever trouble in the world, look for that little GS right next to it. Okay? Hmm. I've got my issues with Goldman Sachs. If you, have, if you want to know why I have a bone to pick with Goldman Sachs, come over. We'll talk about it after the class. I'm not going. I'll tell you all about Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is majorly... Okay, ladies and gentlemen, what happened? So they start selling their bonds at a fire sale, but now, because they're fire selling their products, they don't have the right matchup of assets and liabilities, and everyone freaks out on Friday and says, I want all my money out. Everyone tries to pull their money. It's like literally everybody. And the bank shuts down, and the federal, depo- depo- the federal government comes in and says, don't worry, we're going to take care of this. People were really concerned about how it was going to happen. In the end, the government said, I'll take care of all the depositors. How? I'll just print more money. Because that's what we do! Printer go burr. John, but it's got to be quick. Go ahead. What about the fact they invested in so much ESB? ESG is what you're talking about. Yes, that is true. Well, th- th- John is making a good point. Last year, during the time... Now, now, let me just explain to you. What could have they done to fix this situation? You have to buy government bonds. The government bonds were 1.5%. Now they're 3 4 4%, and you lost all this money. What could have you done? There's one thing that you could have done. You could have hedged your bond portfolio, which basically means you buy insurance that if the government keeps putting up their prices and we start losing money in our bonds, then you'll make us whole. And by the way, Silicon Valley Bank in 2020 did hedge their bond portfolio appropriately. In 2021 and 22, they did not. They were busy spending it on a lot of ESG initiatives. They promised $5 billion to more sustainable startups that might not make a lot of money, but they're hopefully going to make the world more sustainable, right? They, had, they invested in a lot of diversity officers, but for eight months last year, the bank, with $200 billion, did not have a chief risk officer. They fired their chief risk officer, and they didn't replace her until eight months later. And in that time, the, the, the bank went crazy. Okay. What do we learn from all this? But do you understand now a little bit better what happened to SVB? Are you guys with me? You guys got the whole... You guys, I'm sure... Look, I hope this is a little bit of a helpful primer because you probably were wondering what happened there. Now you know. Now you know what happened. Okay. Here's the issue, my friends. The issue is that money is broken in America. And when you have money being broken, it's like when the plumbing is broken, you'll have leaks coming out of your roof one day, the next day your faucet is going bad. The next day your, your toilet's backing up. And all these things start happening. And you're like, what's happening? What's happening? But the reality is you just have a broken plumbing system. 
Another example, you're a doctor. This person comes in. One day they have an infection in their ears, and three weeks later they have uh, an infection in their, in, their, in their feet, and then they have an intestinal infection. Now you could try to treat all their infections, or you might say, let me go and see what's, what kind of environment this person lives in. Turns out they live in a home that's dirty, filled with bacteria, nasty, and then you say, okay, that's why everything's breaking down. Money in America is broken. You know why? Because there's no stopping it. The printer goes burr. There's no controls. There's no responsibility. There's no sense of, I need to ha- have a limited, finite amount of money to print. When there's infinite amount of money to print and there's nothing stopping it, then money starts to break down. We see all kinds of issues. Bank failures. We see inflation. We see people who have a lot of money making much more money, people who don't have money getting much more squeezed because the money concentrates up. The closer you are to the government spigot, the more you make, and as it trickles down, there's less and less, so you see incredible disparities of wealth. In the 1950s in America, you could have a a one earning, you could have a, a home with a family and only one wage earner. The father goes out to work or the mother goes out to work. And you could support a family. You could own a home. You could have two, three children and a dog. And you could do this. In America today, many homes have two wage earners and they still can't make it. They still can't even afford a home. The system starts to break down when money is broken. And the reason why money is broken is because money is infinite. There's no end. Every time we hit the debt ceiling... We just increase it and increase it. Now they're saying we should remove the debt ceiling altogether. There's literally calls right now in Congress saying enough with these debt ceiling negotiations. We should have no debt ceiling. We can print as much as fast as we can. What we find out is that when things are infinite, bloat sets in and rapid deterioration. At first it's barely noticeable. But then the deterioration starts coming and coming and coming and coming faster. That's what's happening right now. And I'm sure when I'm talking, you guys, you hear what I'm saying. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. What's the solution? If the problem is infinite, the solution is finite. If the problem is infinite money, then money has no value, right? How valuable is something if you can just print infinite more of it? Then it's infinitely invaluable. The solution is something finite. That's why in 2009, after witnessing the American entire financial industry going into collapse, for very similar types of reasons, although there was difference, it's not exactly the same. It's more of to do with real estate, but every cycle and boom and bust all comes from the same basic reason, is that the money is broken. Some anonymous guy named Satoshi Nakamoto wrote a paper about how we could solve this by creating a monetary system that was finite. He called that monetary system Bitcoin. And he said there only will be 21 million Bitcoin ever. And here is the schedule. The Bitcoins are going to be produced every 10 minutes at this exact schedule. At first there will be 50 every 10 minutes, and then 25, and then 12 and a half, and then 6.25, which is right now, every 10 minutes. 6.25 new Bitcoin come out every 10 minutes. But in about a year and and a month from now, it will go down to 3.125. And then four years later, it will go down to 1.25. 615, whatever the number is. That was one important component of it. It's finite. When something is finite, it accumulates value. Gold is finite. 
So gold accumulates value. If you may have noticed, the price of gold recently is skyrocketing because people are realizing money is infinite, gold is finite. So people start buying more gold. People start buying assets that they can't just produce more of. Real estate has always been a very good investment because you can't just make more real estate. It doesn't, you can't print. The money printer can print money. It can't print buildings. It can't print buildings because buildings require natural resources like iron and wood and steel. And those things are finite. It requires human labor. That's finite. So we have a system, a mismatch, where the American money system is infinite, Bitcoin is something finite. Let's take this to Pesach. You guys ready? You're like, how are we going to do this, Rabbi? <laughs> Easy. Easy. How long do you have to make matzah? 18 minutes. It is a very, very finite number. From the time the water hits the dough, you have 18 minutes to get that thing in the oven. And that's it. It's very, very finite, which means what do you do with the matzah? You work really quickly with it. Like I told you last week, I worked in a matzah factory. Everybody there is working top speed because you have 18 minutes for an entire shift. Time is finite, you work fast. Time is finite, there's no slouchers. When time is infinite, I'll get to it. Chametz represents all the time in the world. You take that stuff, you take the yeast, you put it in the dough, you set it out on the counter, hasta la vista. And at first nothing happens. But slowly the bloat starts to get in there. Slowly the inflation starts to happen. Slowly the dough gets bigger and bigger and, and eventually it will take over your kitchen. The bloat sets in when you think you have all the time in the world. Ushamartem es hamatzos. The Torah tells us you must guard the matzos. Make sure that it doesn't fall into chametz. And what do the sages say to us about this pasuk? Al tikre ushamartem es hamatzos. Don't read you shall watch the matzos. Rather, ushamartem es hamitzvos. You shall watch the mitzvos. Mitzvah haba liyadcha al tachmitzena. When a mitzvah comes to your hands, do not let it get chametz. Do not let it sit. You don't have infinite time to do mitzvahs. When you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, treat it like matzah. Get on it and get on it right now. Now I'm going to tell you a little self-confession, but I've got a feeling that maybe one or two other people in this world in this room, I'm sorry, share this confession with me. For starters, for starters, I'm not nearly what I should be. And a large part of that is because I'll get to it. I've got my whole life ahead of me. I don't have my whole life ahead of me. I, I used to think that way, but the weird thing is we still think that way. We have this immortality infallibility complex. We'll get to it. we got time. No, we don't. We have 18 minutes. Chai. We have our life. When you have the opportunity to make change in your life, when you have the opportunity, watch the matzah. Learn from the matzah. When things are infinite, people will scramble. Sorry, when things are finite, people will scramble for it. People will fight for it. People will work for it. 
If you have infinite money, people don't, it just, the whole system becomes devalued. If you have finite money like Bitcoin, I could sit here for hours, my friends, telling you about the incredible innovations that have been created through Bitcoin. Everything from flared gas mining to villages in Africa that now have hydroelectric dams to give them energy. They never had electricity before because they can use part of that electricity for Bitcoin mining. It's what we call stranded energy. To the Lightning Network, where instead of going to you know, Western Union and spending $12 to send $80 home to your family in Honduras, you can send it for $0.04 cents on the Lightning Network. I can go here for hours about the incredible innovations that have happened in 14 years in the Bitcoin network because it's finite. The money is finite. The money is real. And therefore, people want it. They want to accumulate it. They want to use it. They want to interact with it. Now, we're still early on, by the way. So I know it's volatile. You're going to say, Rabbi, but it's volatile. I agree. Amazon also lost 94% of its value in one year after the tech fall. And it still became second largest, one of the largest companies in the world. It's volatile. And I'm not telling you to buy Bitcoin at all. I'm explaining the idea of finite money versus infinite money and the breakdowns you see all over the financial systems that has worked with infinite money. That's Chametz. Chametz is bloated, and it's blowing up all over the place right now. That's lesson number one about how we learn this idea that matzah is finite. You have finite time with it. It has to be watched. The Gemara says... As long as you're handling the dough, you can keep it from rising. The minute you stop, it starts to rise. Life is like that. As long as you're handling, working. I'm not saying you've got to be perfect tomorrow. But you've got to be working on yourself. Don't let go. Don't coast. Time is not infinite. When we think we have infinite time to fix everything, then we just, we'll get to it. That's idea number one. Idea number two. In October of 2008, I wrote a Shabbos email. At that time, it was right after Lehman Brothers was starting to fall. And I wrote a Shabbos email trying to explain to people what was going on. Kind of like this class, trying to talk a little bit about banking failures um, and the world. Now, of course, that time of year was a different time of year, so I wasn't really talking about Pesach. But I want to read to you a very, very important part of that email. I was talking about people's lack of saving. And this again, I wrote this in 2008. In 1958, the average American family put away $4,218 a year into savings and owed only $24,677 in total debt, including their mortgage, their car payment, whatever it would be. Student debt. Okay. Today, This is 2008. The average American only puts $392 into savings and owes $117,607 in total debt. To put this in perspective, 50 years ago, people were putting away 17% of their total debt into savings every year, while today they're putting in one-third of 1%. Now, I tried to pull the the, uh, actual... Graph, because there's an amazing graph. I couldn't find it right before I was giving this class. It shows household debt and household savings. Now, it's actually fascinating. Right in like the beginning of the pandemic, 
there's a reverse because suddenly households got flooded with money. So their savings went way up and they couldn't even spend so much of it because their stores were closed, they couldn't travel. So they kind of were, they ended up accumulating enormous amounts of money. Again, the government was just printing trillions of dollars and giving it out. No problem. The government says, I got you, baby. No worries. No worries. I got you. So they're just printing out trillions of dollars. So suddenly people have trillions of dollars in their bank accounts. And that was in like 2020 and you couldn't really spend it anywhere because you couldn't go anywhere. And their debt went down because people paid off their debt. But Americans' savings have since then plummeted to their lowest levels, even below 2008. And their debt has skyrocketed to all-time highs. So this same scenario I was describing in 2008 has gotten even worse. We're borrowing... And and by the way, America... (laughs) We are, we are Americans. Just like America is borrowing more money and has skyrocketing debt and they don't have any way to pay it, so too are American households. At the Pesach Seder, we do something very interesting. We go to this thing called Yachatz. Yachatz is the fourth step of the Seder. And we break the middle matzah in half and we hide the larger half. And of course, Flo is laughing over here because she knows that my grandfather would say, you can't have a, a larger half. Ah, uh-huh, right? If it's a half, it's a half. 50%. Okay. Sorry, Zadie. We hide the larger piece. We hide the larger piece. What's the idea behind this? When the Jewish people became free, everyone thinks that freedom was the goal. Freedom! Freedom wasn't the goal. The goal was actually service. Just service to a higher power. While we were in Egypt, we were avadim to Paro. We were slaves to Paro. And we came out of Egypt, and 50 days later we were standing at Sinai where we pledged to become in the service of God. Servants of God. As King David says, Ani avdecha ben amasecha. I am the servant, the son of your maidservant. Every human being has to serve. We all serve. The question is, what do you serve? Okay? The human condition is that you will serve. The question is, what do you serve? Do you serve your wife and children? Do you serve your community? Do you serve God? Or do you serve everything else. There's a million things to serve out there. Some people are busy serving cultural battles, right? On the left and on the right. People who spend their entire lives serving cultural battles. They're so worked up about it. Their whole life. You can't have a 10 minute conversation before they get into, oh this, Biden this, Trump this. They're serving, that's, that's, their, that's their raison d'etre to fulminate about cultural battles. Some people serve sports. They are so busy. They're, they live their life in service of sports. They have to go to work sometimes. But even at work, they're checking their, their March Madness squares. And they're betting. And they're fan duel. And every week on Sunday, they've got their parlay bets on this website and that. I mean, do you know how many billions of dollars Americans lose every year? Gambling platforms that are now in every person's app, on every phone. <laughs> hundreds of billions of dollars that Americans are losing. They're not losing, they're serving their sports addiction. 
Everyone's going to serve. The question is, what are you serving? Are you serving a greater version of you and a greater version of the world? Or are you serving a lesser version of you? So let's imagine I have $1,000 right now. I could either A, buy the latest iPhone. Just kidding. You can't buy the latest iPhone for $1,000. It's like $1,300. Okay, let's say I have, well, I want to I have $1,500. With $1,500, I could buy the latest iPhone, the iPhone, what are we up to? 14, 15, 17? Pro Max? What are we up to? Whatever. The, the latest Pro Max, okay? I don't even know. I don't even know. 14. iPhone 14 Pro Max. $1,500. Or I could take that money and I could say, I got $1,500. I already have a phone. It still works. Maybe it's got a cracked screen or something, but it works just fine. It makes phone calls. It makes texts. You know, it's, I'm going to hold on for one more year before buying a new phone. I'll take this $1,500 or buying a new laptop or buying a new Xbox. I got the Xbox 5 and I got the Xbox 6 and, you know, whatever. So I'm going to hold on to this $1,500. Here's what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to give $150 to charity. That's called MICER. Right? That money will be with me for all of eternity. For all of eternity. Then I'm going to take another $150 and I'm going to use it to buy something nice for myself. I deserve something for myself. Whatever, you know, so it's not going to be an Xbox 6 or whatever it is. So I'll buy myself, you know, something because, you know, I've worked hard for this money or whatever. And 500 goes to family needs to make my house more beautiful. Let's say, to make my house more beautiful. It's nice to be able to live in a, in a comfortable, nice house. And the rest I'm going to put away. I'll have $700 left. I'm going to put it away for my future so that I can have a better future. When I retire, I could be free then to make the choices I want. I'm buying something for the future. When I have self-sovereignty, I heard a great line the other day. Someone said, there's a, there's a Bitcoin podcast called What Bitcoin Did. And they have just recently, they just finished it yesterday, a three-part beginner's series where the podcast host, a guy named Peter McCormick, he asks three thought leaders in the Bitcoin space the most basic questions about Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin? What is the mining? You know, what is Bitcoin mining? How do I hold Bitcoin? How do I buy it? Why should I this? Why is it bad for the environment? I mean, all these basic, very, 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 very basic questions. And he asks one of these people, what is Bitcoin? And the guy says, Bitcoin is money for someone who's ready to have self-sovereignty. Because government money is easy, it's free, it's risk-free, no problem. If you put it in the wrong bank and the bank goes bad, don't worry, we got you. You don't have to do the homework and look and say, wait, is this bank being responsible? Don't worry about that. Even if there's bad actors out there, totally irresponsible actors who are not hedging their, their balance sheet, don't worry, we got you. And we got you all the time. No worries, says the American government. Or you say... I want to opt into a system that's going to be a little bit more difficult. You have to learn about it. You have to read up about it. You have to educate yourself about it. You don't even know how to buy it. And it's not that, you know, it, it, it takes, there's a phrase in the Bitcoin community. It says, everyone owns the Bitcoin they deserve. Right? You have the one guy in Shul, right? Bitcoin, the whole thing is a scam. Right? I get those guys all the time. I say, really? Tell me. How, you know, what, what books have you read about Bitcoin? How much education do you have? How many hours did you put into studying Bitcoin? I don't need to put any time into it. The whole thing's a scam, I'm telling you. The whole thing's a scam. <laughs> you know how much Bitcoin that guy deserves? Zero dollars. Then there's the guy who goes to show, and in the back of show, there's this new coin, new cryptocurrency called Shiba Inu, or Doge, or whatever, and it's going to be worth a billion dollars soon, whatever, if you put one dollar in today. If you put a hundred dollars in today, you could be a millionaire. And he goes and buys $100 of Shiba Inu. You know, he's, you know what he deserves? Everyone has the Bitcoin they deserve. 
He deserves Shiba Inu. <laughs> Bitcoin is something that it takes a lot of responsibility. It takes a lot of learning. When people call me about it, I say, I want, I want to recommend books to you. Read them. But n- almost no one ever does. I've read the books. I've read multiple books. I listen to multiple podcasts. I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying there's a certain sense of I want to put away for the future. There are so many people out there who are millionaires, multimillionaires, not because they made crazy amounts of money, but because they, they saved their money and they invested it wisely. If you want to be a free person, be ready to take responsibility for yourself. And taking responsibility for yourself means putting away the larger piece for later. Freedom does not mean I can do whatever I want. Right? People think, oh, the Jews became free. No, freedom does not mean that you can do, oh, I can do whatever I want. No, freedom means you are now responsible for yourself. Make sure you live your life properly. A slave can't. He has no choices. He, has no, he doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any income. He can't make any savings. He can't put away for the future. He can't do anything. He has no choices. You became free. Now you have responsibilities. Freedom is responsibility. The Afikomen teaches us that. You want to experience freedom on the night of the Seder? Take the bigger half and put it away for later. One more idea to, com- to bring together Bitcoin and Pesach. <laughs> Here we go, guys. Someone said to me yesterday, what about gold? What about gold? Now, by the way, gold is a very valuable thing, and it's held its value over time, because we only can produce about 2% more of gold per year. Roughly, I mean, for going on for, for hundreds of years now, roughly the world is able to find and mine and produce about 2% more per year. This is going back for hundreds of years. So it's a very, very low, the, the printer can't go burr. It takes an enormous amount of work, enormous amount of expense to pull it out of the ground. By the way, also an enormous amount of pollution. For all those who say, shut down Bitcoin because it causes so much pollution, you should probably shut down gold too. Because gold causes enormous environmental devastation, enormous pollution. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. Gold is very valuable. The problem with gold is it's not so portable. If you have to get out of a country with your entire net worth in gold... It's not so simple. It's kind of heavy, right? And if you have to use it along the way, let's say, for example, you, you have to... Like, I, let's take people who are, who are fleeing Ukraine. Just now. This happened two, a year and a half ago. When the war started with Ukraine, or a year, I don't know. It's about a year now, whatever it is. People had to get out of Ukraine. And there were many people who fled with their entire savings on a, a jump drive, a little UBS stick, USB stick, because they had it all in cryptocurrency. And if they needed to bribe somebody at the border to get out, and I know many organizations that were involved in bribing guards to let people out. There was an enormous amount of danger. And if you remember, in the beginning of the war, Russia was just shelling indiscriminately. And people raised an enormous amount of money to be able to help get you know, people out of Ukraine. It was very, very dangerous. And bribes had to be paid. Do you know what the guards wanted? They didn't want gold. What are they going to do with gold? They want a cryptocurrency. Because it moves lightning fast. And it's very, very portable. I could take my... If I have to leave, I could take my entire net worth with me. I mean, really on 24 words. But yeah, I don't have to even take a USB cord. I really don't. I don't need a USB drive. As a matter of fact, I could call people in different countries and give them words, certain words, and say, here, if you remember these words, you remember these words. And then I fly to the every country I want to go. I recreate the words, 
and I have everything. I, didn't, I don't have anything on me. They can't even confiscate anything from me. There's nothing there. When the Jewish people were being told to get out, Hashem said a very interesting mitzvah. When the Jewish people were being told to get ready for the first Pesach Seder ever, the first Pesach Seder was actually in Egypt. Right? The Jewish people were told, take a, take a sheep and slaughter the sheep and put the, uh, put the uh, blood on the doorposts. Right? And then God says something very interesting. This is how you shall eat the Pesach Seder. Your shoes should be on your feet. Uh, your, your belt buckled. Right? Now normally sometimes somebody sits down to a meal. They want to unbuck, unbutton the belt a couple notches. You know what I'm saying? Eventually you just give up and buy bigger pants. But when you first start expanding, you know what I'm saying? When you first start expanding, you sit down for a big meal. It gets a little uncomfortable. You, you, un, you loosen up the, uh, the belt. The Torah says no. When it comes to the eating of the carbon Pesach, you got to keep your shoes. People also, they want to be comfortable. They take their shoes off. They sit in their slippers. Hashem says for the Pesach Seder, the first Pesach Seder ever. No, no, no. Shoes on, belt girded. You know, get you got why? You got to be ready to go. You want freedom? You got to be ready to go on a on a on a, hat, on a drop of a hat. You got to be ready to go. You got to have your go bag ready. Interesting. Another similar corollary. When the Torah commands us to build the ark, the ark that would carry the the Torah, the the tablets in it. The Torah tells us that the ark had to have badim, which were these poles. Poles were meant to carry it, right? You have, the, you have this big box, this very heavy box made of gold and wood and had tablets in there made of sapphire, and you have these long poles. However, when it comes specifically to the Aaron, the, the thing that carried the Torah, the Torah has an actual mitzvah in the Torah. You are not allowed to remove the poles from the ark at any time. Why? The sages tell us. Because the Torah represents... Sorry, the Ark represents Torah. Torah, you've got to be ready to take it wherever you go. Torah's got to be portable. If you could only study Torah when you're sitting in your base medrash, in your home, in your comfort, of your, your, in your community, you're going to be in trouble. You've got to be able to study Torah when you're on a business trip. You've got to be able to be studying Torah if, God forbid, you're in a concentration camp. You've got to be able to, be able to study Torah if you're moving something. Whatever happens, Torah's got to be portable. The best value are things that are portable, things that are incredibly hyper-portable. And that's one of the great values of Bitcoin as well. It's hyper-portability. You can move a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin around the world in 10 minutes without ever getting on a plane. There's no shipments. You have to ship a billion dollars of gold. You know how much it costs you to ship a billion dollars in gold? Just the insurance costs and the logistical nightmares and the fears of getting stolen. A billion dollars worth of gold is very, very heavy. You can't walk it out of your... Not that, not that any of us have a billion dollars to walk away with, but if we did, it'd be a lot easier if it's portable. Freedom is portability. Freedom is the ability to have your value with you wherever you are. Our value is the Torah. The Torah has to be with us wherever we are. The badim do not depart from the aron. The staves, the, ho- the, the handles do not leave the aron. The aron has to be ready to go. You're on the road, you're flying, you're driving, wherever you go, you bring your talus, you bring your tefillin, you bring your chumash, you do your reading, you learn your gemara, wherever we go. Freedom is portability. And that, my friends, 
pretty much covers it for today. This was again the cover the, t- the talk on banking failures, Bitcoin, and Pesach. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.